We're going through the Gospel of John, and uh, as I get to the section each week that I'm going to speak on, and this morning it's John chapter 6, verse 16 through 29, I, I read it over and over through the week in preparation for uh, studying it and what I'm going to teach about, and, and I like to kind of pick a something, um, uh, zero in on a particular application for us, and so as I read it repeatedly, I sort of ask God to direct my thoughts in what it is that I could uh, talk about, teach about in regards to this particular passage. And so this one, it was a little, you know, I, I would read it and think about it because it's the story about uh, Jesus walking on the water. And it, it's sort of like, okay, come to church this morning and I'll teach you how to walk on the water. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and so the application, uh, we could talk about faith, any, any number of things, but I kind of struggled with this one in the sense of what exactly can we land on, make application. Then I was reading it and I thought it sort of jumped off the page at me in the sense of uh, there's a really clear uh, picture here of two groups of people in this story. Uh, the first group are the disciples, those who followed Jesus and just the, the life that they had with, for three years with Jesus, seeing all the stuff that he did. Uh, witnessing him walking on the water, feeding 5,000 men and their wives and their, and their children, 25,000 individuals, healing thousands and thousands of people. Just being around that for three years, they were, they were I mean, that was, you talk about a cool adventure. They, they were in, in on it. And then there was the other group in this story we would call and refer to as the crowd. And uh, they both had a relationship with Jesus the disciples were followers, servants. Uh, the crowd, they were uh, seeking Jesus. That was simply to have their bellies full, uh, to have another free meal, as it were, to have their needs met, to have their problems fixed. And so the contrast between those two groups in this story is quite obvious. So let me read to you um, John, John chapter 6, verse 16 and following. Now when evening came, remember last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, literally 25,000, and they were going across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples, because they had been healing people and, 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 and the point where they couldn't even sit down, they couldn't eat, they were just exhausted and they got news that John the Baptist had been murdered, beheaded, and Jesus, uh, you know, the grief that he would go through. So he said, let's get in a boat, go to the other side. Nobody lived over there. It was a lonely place and we'll just kind of take a break from the crowds and and the people saw them, and they followed them all the way around the Sea of Galilee. And when they got there, there were 25,000 people waiting for them. And it's like, oh, man, give me a break sort of a thing. Uh, but they, Jesus ministers to the crowds, and he feeds them all miraculously from a couple of loaves and fish. And it's an all-day deal. And so evening comes, and that's where this story picks up. His disciples went down to the sea, and they get into a boat, and they head over to the other side. It's... It's dark, and it had already become dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. And so he sticks around and dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on the mountain and prays. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now you remember, Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The mountains around it are 2,000 feet above sea level. And it creates this perfect setting for winds to create waves and storms. It's not particularly deep uh, lake, and so that was a regular occurrence, especially at night. And... Uh, when you get some of the thermal changes. So they head out and this big wind comes. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. 
than when they had rowed about three or four miles. Remember the Sea of Galilee, 13 miles top to bottom, eight miles at its widest place, width-wise. So three or four miles, they're about in the middle, right in the middle of the thing. And that's where they are. Uh, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. That'd be an experience, wouldn't it? Drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately, now we talked about the fact that there are seven miracles in the Gospel of John, but uh, we don't include two of them right here. They're kind of a package deal. Jesus walking on the water, obviously, is a miracle. But when he gets in the boat, the sea calms down, and then it says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They still got three or four miles to go. And they've been rowing on the oars for about eight hours against the storm, made three miles, and Jesus gets in the boat and whoop, they're to the other side. Uh, and so uh, the, the, we don't really mention that as a miracle. Compared to walking on the water, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day the crowd, now that's the contrasting group in relationship to, to Jesus, that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat. So they recognized the disciples got in the boat, Jesus didn't, so he should still be there somewhere. And they're sort of looking for him. Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd, again, that's this group of individuals of 25,000 plus people, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Basically, how'd you do this? Uh, how'd you pull this one off? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, he doesn't give them an answer. He doesn't tell them what happens. They don't know anything about walking on the water. They don't know anything about what he'd gone through with his disciples because that's sort of the disciples... That's, um, they're the ones who know, but the crowd, he says, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Uh, they, they say, we, we'd like to do some uh, cool things. And Jesus, again, doesn't give them much of an answer. He simply says, this is the work of God that you believe. Uh, that you believe, that you believe that I am indeed the Messiah, the one sent from God. That's kind of it. Let me read to you the parallel story in Matthew. This one's a bit uh, more of a miracle because it includes Peter walking on the water. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds, again, the crowds, the contrast relationship between uh, the disciples and their walk with Jesus, he sent the crowds away. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, and, and John, we know it's three or four miles, for the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night, the fourth watch of the night was between three and six in the morning. And so they left at dark at probably nine uh, and we'll just say it's four o'clock in the morning, uh, eight hours approximately. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. 
When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And even in this story, you see the relationship that Jesus has with the disciples, where he is nurturing, mentoring, teaching, encouraging. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Now, Jesus never hesitates when you want to do something uh, risky, difficult, new. He said, come, and Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. Again, this is a disciple. He stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. So I don't know if you can see the difference. Disciples, special, in on the the miracles. Jesus encouraging, walk on the water, rescuing when they fail. Preaching, teaching, encouraging, motivating the crowds. Uh, You're only following me because you want a free meal. And so, question on this, the disciples, 11 of them, 12 of them, but one turns out to be not such a committed one. Why? All the people that there were around Jesus, what was the reason why there were these 11 in the boat with him that saw all the stuff that he saw, experienced all the things they experienced, and then there were the thousands and thousands and thousands that had demons cast out of them, miracle after miracle performed on them, but not much of a relationship with him. Uh, what was the difference? Um, and today, if we were to ask ourselves the question and get a clear answer, which group am I in? Uh, Am I one of the disciples or am I one of the crowd? Is my relationship with Jesus uh, because of commitment to follow and serve or am I one that's just sort of looking to have my life fixed and make things better and easier? Uh, Which group am I in? I uh, went to my uh, daughter, son-in-law's grandkids' house and on the dining room table they had a solar system made up with fruit. Uh, the sun, I think, was an orange. And then the, the first planet was an uh, apple, and then I forget what Earth was. I think it was a grapefruit. Uh, but they went all the way out to Pluto with all these various fruits representing planets that revolved around the sun. And they tried to set it, you know, illustrating the amount of miles, and they were learning about the solar system. So let's think of that this morning and think of the sun being Jesus. And then each of us, as one of those planets... Uh, rotating around him, uh, Jesus. Now you have the one that's the closest, uh, and then you have the one that's the farthest. And I guess they're coming up with some new planets now that are even farther away than Pluto. Uh, And so one of those is you, uh, in the sense of the distance you are from Jesus, rotating around him. So John, you remember when we started the Gospel of John, his title was the Beloved. He was closer to Jesus than any other person. His relationship with him was more intimate than any of the other disciples. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he saw John, he gave him the responsibility of taking care of his mother. John knew things that nobody else knew. He knew who was going to betray Jesus before anybody else did. 
Uh, he just had that special relationship with him. Then there was Peter and James. They were close. And then the eleven. And then there were some others. Number one in your notes, there were eleven disciples. Uh, and they were disciples because they were uh, followers, committed, devoted to him. And so as we look at this solar system, you can just say, okay, let's put them as the, uh, the one that's closest to revolving around Jesus. And then there were also a group that were called the 70. Number two, there were 70 who were committed to the point that Jesus sent them, gave them a significant opportunity to serve him, and they made a huge difference in the lives of people. They were able to heal people, cast out demons, teach, do miracles, the 70. They were sent out by Jesus in pairs. Uh, they went ahead of him. They were sort of the ones that prepared the city before he came in to preach into these various cities. Luke 10, now after this, the Lord appointed 70. 70 others sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come and heal those in it who were sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, they, they weren't as close to Jesus as the eleven, but they were certainly committed. They were given a great deal of power. And then there were 120. Number three, there were 120 people who Jesus handpicked to be in the upper room and pray for ten days. Now, Jesus is crucified on a cross. He's buried. He rises from the dead. And for 40 days, uh, he talks to people and appears to people. And then just before he heads off to heaven... He handpicks 120 individuals and he says, I'd like you to pray all together. And they do for 10 days. At the end of that 10-day period, the Holy Spirit comes with a great wind, with fire. Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 people uh, believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the church begins. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up, lifted up, headed up to heaven, while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. They went there because Jesus gave them those instructions. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there. So, if I had lived during that time... I wonder if I'd have been one of the 11. Well, how about maybe one of the 70? Well, one of the 120. What would have it required for me to be one of those? And then at number four, there were 500 that Jesus purposely made a point to see and let them see him after his resurrection. So during the 40 days after he rose from the dead, before he headed off to heaven, Jesus had a kind of a list uh, I think he was just checking off as he went, okay, I want to make sure I see John, and I want to make sure I see Pete, and, and I want to make sure I see Ted and, and Sally and, and, and Sue. I want to see these individuals. So there were 500 individuals that got to witness Jesus after he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren, 500 individuals. And then number five, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had an experience with Jesus, were healed, fed, had a demon cast out of them, but they weren't followers. 
they were the crowd. <clears throat> their relationship was basically based on their personal need and desire to have that need met. So the, the question is, uh, if I lived during that particular time, the 11, the 70, the 120, the 500, or the thousands that experienced him had something miraculous done by him, where would I be in the scheme of things? And obviously, I don't know the answer to that, but the one I can't answer is today. In the sense that you have this solar system, Jesus is at the center, and then you have a planet revolving, and another one revolving, and another one revolving, and distance from him. Now, a problem that we have is because we're going around in a circle, around in a circle, around in a circle, we tend to fool ourselves into thinking that uh, something is happening because there's movement, there's busyness. Uh, but we're just going around in a circle, around in a circle. And there's no movement towards Him in our walk and our relationship with Him, in our commitment uh, and our devotion to Him. We're just going around in a circle, around in a circle. My dog Russell, <clears throat> when you turn him loose, he's got a little leash he's on at night and he's got a little house he sleeps in. And, and uh, in the morning, this morning when I came down and I unsnapped him, uh, as soon as I unsnap him, he runs through the living room, through the dining room, into the kitchen, and he hits the door there. I mean, he just literally comes to a sliding halt and bounces off the wall, and then he runs across the same place he just came, and right behind the stove, there's a bare place of wall, and he, and he runs up to that and slides to a stop and bounces off the wall, and then he runs back again, and he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and if you get in his way, you're liable to get run over. I mean, he goes like that for, I don't know, for several minutes until he stands with his tongue hanging. <laughs> He's just... Back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> Lots of people, around and around and around and around. But what we want is to move towards Him, towards Jesus, and to become committed. Uh, John 6, 26, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, you seek me, you seek me, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Number six, Jesus regularly makes a distinction between those who are genuine followers and those who are looking to Jesus to fix their problems. So as he, you read through the Gospels, he'll tell story after story after story, illustration after illustration after illustration, picture after picture after picture that sort of shows the contrast between groups of people. Uh, Matthew 13, 24, a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Tares kind of look like wheat. They grow together. Matthew 13, 47, a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, the bad they threw away. And so you've got the wheat and the tares and the good fish and the bad fish. Matthew 25, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 1, ten virgins who took their lamps went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent, wise. Uh, and so Jesus talks about wheat and tares and good fish and bad fish, and goats and sheep, and uh, wise virgins and foolish virgins. And then in Matthew 25, he talks about individuals uh, that serve him. One received two talents, came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. I've gained two more. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, weep, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering 
where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. Again, contrast between uh, the servant that did well and the one who didn't do so well. So Jesus tells more stories, many more stories, and they're simply illustrating uh, groups or classes of people. Number seven, Jesus was not very patient with those who were not fully committed to following him. <clears throat> I got on the scales this morning, and uh, I'm sort of depressed. I uh, lost 45 pounds on my bicycle trip. Started out at 230 and came home 185 pounds, less than I weighed when I got married. Uh, and I was committed, I'm never going to gain that weight back again. And I got on the scales this morning and I weighed 200 pounds. And so, I don't know, if it sounds like I'm a little bit flat this morning, that's because. Would it be cool if you could get on a scale and you could see your relationship with Jesus? Fully devoted follower, committed up to the eyeballs. One of the crowd, interested in Jesus simply for what he can do, problems he can fix. Uh, no such thing. But it is important, I think, that we would regularly look at our own life and ask ourselves the question, who am I? Where am I? Uh, am I one that's just kind of going around in a circle, thinking maybe that there's some progress because there's motion, but I'm just going around in a circle, going around in a circle, there's nothing happening that's moving me closer to the center towards Jesus, towards commitment to Him. Um, Matthew 8:19. a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus knows people, and he says, uh, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's basically saying, it's not an easy life following me. Uh, a lot of sacrifice required. Matt, Matthew 8, 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now what he was wanting, his dad wasn't dead, he just wanted to stick around until his dad died so he could be in on the inheritance. And he didn't want to follow Jesus off somewhere in case his dad died while he was gone. He'd miss out on the inheritance. Jesus says, uh, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. The dead are the spiritually dead, that is, these over here that are not particularly interested in following Jesus. Let them take care of that. You follow me. Luke 9, 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Number eight, Jesus taught those who believed in him what a true disciple looked like. <clears throat> so you don't have a scale, but if you look in the mirror and say, am I a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Am I a true disciple? Or am I one of the crowd that's pretty much just in this for what I can get out of it and the blessings that come into my life? John eight thirty one. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, now understand something as I talk about this topic. When you die and stand before God and He says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? The answer is, I believe the gospel. You get into heaven by faith and faith alone. No works required. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not by any works of righteousness that we might do. Uh, it's a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Uh, it's yours by faith and faith alone. But that could be 
20 years before you enter into heaven, either Jesus coming or you dying. So in the meantime, uh, you want to be Pluto, just going around in a circle? Or would you like to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and be uh, sort of on the inner group that does something with your life that matters as you serve him? It's our choice. Uh, we don't have to be fully devoted follower of Jesus to get to heaven. That's free faith, faith alone. That's why there's so many in the crowd. Because leading, living the comfortable, easy, uncommitted life with little sacrifice, uh, that's kind of appealing. Following Jesus, he said, you know, this is a way tougher life. Um, John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Oh, I forgot to read eight, uh, John eight thirty one. Excuse me, back up one verse. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Uh, you're committed to Jesus, you read the word. John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That means you have a list of people that you work with, live next door to, related to, that you're praying for, that they'd come to know Jesus. That means you're looking for an opportunity to do something for someone, to meet a need in their life, to attract them to Jesus. It means that you're, you're looking for an opportunity to pray for an individual and their need and their problem and their trial so that you can influence them for Jesus. It means that you're inviting people uh, to church that you're looking for an opportunity to share with them what he's done in your life so that they can come to know him as their savior you're bearing fruit and so prove to be a disciple of jesus john 13 35 by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and so it's a disciple a fully devoted follower of jesus number nine as believers in jesus we will feel the pull the invitation inside of us in our hearts to follow him <clears throat> So why did Matthew become a disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus walked up to him and said, Hey, follow me. And so he left his business and followed Jesus. Why did Peter become a follower of Jesus? Because Jesus walked up to him and said, Hey, follow me. He left his net, he left his father, he left his business, and he followed Jesus. Jesus gave an invitation to people, and they responded by following or not. And uh, we, I believe, get the same invitation today as believers headed for heaven from Him. And we don't hear Him like they did. We hear Him inside, in our spirit, in our soul, in our heart. Matthew 4.18, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And He said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll train you. I'll teach you. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, uh, I felt that. And uh, we will be given an invitation by him Number 10, if we truly want to be his disciple, it's a good thing to say every day, Jesus, I will follow you. It's a, a presentation, volunteer commitment, here I am, use me kind of a deal. And the emphasis is that we would uh, re-enlist every day. Jesus, I will follow you, I will serve you, 
you are Lord of my life. You are king, you are master. I will do whatever you want, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. And so I do it every morning, first thing. This morning laying on my bed, alarm went off. Let's see, what is it? Oh, this is Sunday. I've got to preach today. Lay there in my bed. Patty's already up. I just laid there and put my hand up in the air and said, Jesus, you're my Lord, my Savior, my King, my Master. Uh, today, I, I, I will serve you. I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you ask, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. Everyday deal. Romans 6.13, present yourself to God. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, alive from the dead, that means you're going to heaven, as instruments of righteousness, instruments of righteousness, That's, that means God does his work through you, present yourselves to him, Luke 9.23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to follow him, take up your cross daily, every day, every day, every day, commit your life to following, serving him. So one of the things you might ask is, what's in it for me? Number 11, the key to knowing God's will for your life is choosing every, to, every day to follow Him. That's the number one request over the years as a pastor when people say, hey, pastor, can I come talk to you? Sure. And uh, people come into my office and they want to talk about their marriages, their kids, their jobs, whatever. The number one thing over the years has been, I got this decision and I want to know what is the will of God for my life and how can I know what His will is. I've been there so many times. And uh, my response, if you come in and ask me that question, will be, uh, are you a disciple? Sometimes I get a puzzled look like, what? You know, you can be a person that's a believer, you trusted Him, you believe the Gospel, you believe Jesus is God, you believe He came to this earth, became man, you believe that He lived a sinless life, you believe that He was nailed to a cross, and while He hung there, all of your sins were put on Him, and He paid all of your sin, uh, the price of it, and that He died... Uh, was buried, rose again, is alive today, you can trust and believe the gospel, be born again, forgiven, adopted into the family of God, headed for heaven, and you can live this life pretty much for yourself and, uh, and really enjoying the fact that you're going to go to heaven. Or you can be an individual that's committed to serving Him and doing His work and His will. Now, if you're one of the ones that's just going around in a circle, uh, not that close to Jesus, you're not going to know His will. You can do all kinds of things to try to figure out what it is, but the fact is, it's going to be a... Uh, just take, get some dice and roll them. You'll probably figure his will out as accurately as that, that way as any other way. Uh, Romans 12 says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, I urge you, by the mercies of God, that is because of everything he's done for you, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Present yourself to him a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that, here's what happens when you do that. You will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you say, you're Lord of my life, you're Lord of my life, you are my master, you're my king, I will serve you, I'll follow you, I will do your work, whatever it is, no matter how hard or difficult it is, Jesus is going to show you what to do. You're going to know what His will is for your life. Number 12, the key to having God's strength is to choose to follow Him every day. <clears throat> I uh, pray for every one of you every day, uh, every week. 
I have you in, most of you in my uh, iPad in the form of your picture. Uh, I get it from the directory, uh, Facebook. Some of you, I said, hey, how about sending me a picture? And you've done a selfie and poof, mailed it to me and I put it in there. And it's helpful to have your picture there. And I put your goals, if you sent them under your name, and I pray for your goals and the different things I put in there. If you put prayer requests in the prayer letter, I cut and paste and put those in there. And I've really, it's gotten to be a, I just love my iPad and my prayer journal for you. And I work through that baby every week and I pray for you. And there's a little part under almost every one of your names where I've got a number and uh, it'll be a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten. And behind the number is a date. That's the day I put the number in there. Now, it's, it's not judgmental in the sense of being critical, but it is an evaluation that I as a pastor make. Uh, and, and it's one means you're about as close as you can get, in my opinion, to being a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. Ten is you're a long ways away. Not much interest in serving or following him. Now, the number that I would assign to you on the basis of my observation really isn't the big deal. What's the big deal is the date and how long that's been unchanged. See, because there's so many that get in an orbit, go around and around and around and around, wherever they are, and they never change. There's no movement towards him. And so when I pray for you every week, one of the things that I pray about is if I have a seven for you, that you would become a six. That God would work in such a way, somehow, that you would take a step closer to him in your devotion, commitment to following and serving, uh, being a slave of Jesus. And if you know, there's a six, I pray that you'd become a five. And I keep praying for you that God would work in such a way that you'd keep moving closer to the Son, to Jesus, and your commitment and devotion to Him. Now one of the things that's an easy thing to observe is that those who do well as uh, people have strength. Uh, they've got an inner strength that comes from Him. And that strength is given by God to those who are committed to serving Him. If you're not going to do anything with your life that really matters, you don't need that much. And so Psalms 18, this is a Psalms that David writes as a slave, a servant of God. And he says that, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. For by you I can run upon a troop and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength. The God who girds me with strength makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet. Sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. That's a psalm of a servant of the Lord. And so, you know, if you're here going around the sun, around and around, and nothing's happening towards him in the way of commitment, uh, you can stay there and you go to heaven. And, uh, you know, you're a believer and 
you love him, but if you want to follow him, serve him, do his will, do his work, it's a basis, it's a result of committing your life, saying, uh, I will. I am your servant. I am your slave. You are Lord of my life. You are king. Picking up your cross and following him. And when a person does that every day, every day, every day, you will move closer and closer to him. And you will know his will. And he will give you great things to do. He'll open up doors and provide opportunities of service for you. And he'll give you the strength. He'll give you the strength to do it. Not only to serve well, but also to grow in character. And uh, you will know it on the inside that you're a strong person living life with victory and power. And it's not an issue of uh, trying. It's an issue of commitment. Uh, I choose to follow you. Uh, I declare you Lord of my life. That simple statement on a daily basis is amazing in its power to transform us from the inside out. Um, And so, two groups of people Those who were in the boat, watching Jesus, witnessing what he did close to him, having him uh, teach them, and those that were on the shore running around the outside uh, looking for another free meal. Our choice. He's always making the invitation, come follow me, come follow me. And we respond uh, or we don't. And uh, so make the commitment to be a follower, fully devoted follower to Jesus and Choose to do that every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you with our whole heart. Thank you for saving us, giving us the gift of eternal life in heaven forever. As we live our life, we can, uh, Lord, we can, uh, we can just revolve around and around and around and around in a circle. Or we can move closer to you. And we would, each one of us, say, Lord, we want to grow in our intimacy and in our walk and our relationship with you. And we choose every day to say, you are Lord of my life. I will follow, I will serve you. Grant us the strength to do that, Lord. Give us open doors, opportunities. Use us for your glory as instruments of righteousness. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.